0: And welcome to SpiritGuides.co.uk network radio. Tonight we've got on Dr. Andrew Silverman, who was on here before, discussing the Shroud of Turing with Nigel Kerner, who was a previous guest, uh, talking about the grey aliens and basically around what they're here and what they're up to. Um, we did cover at the end of the show, briefly, really, the, the research around the Shroud of Turing. So, really, I wanted to get Andrew back on to sort of dig deeper, really, on this topic. Just like to start off getting a bit of background around how you got into it um and you know really what you do really I know you're a doctor what got you involved in this work
1: Well um about um, 30 years ago actually when I was um I was a, a friend of, of Nigel Sanakshaw I visited um Nigel's place in um in South London and um I saw he had um this um this photo on the on the wall which caught caught my eye this print of the uh photographic neg- negative of the Turin shroud um and i was asking him about it about what it was and i found it really fascinating that this you know ancient piece of cloth should should have such such a a, a perfect photograph on it way before cameras were even invented or di- and it was just it fascinated me um and actually, um, even, even back then, um, Nigel did have some ideas about it, about what it, what it meant and what it might represent that, that really sort of um, set a, uh, like a seed crystal in my mind, if you like, of, that later, as I um, became older and, and, and you know, learned a bit more about science and so on and it, it really began to i began to think about these things that he'd said to me you know way back then um and um it began to to fit into a into what i think is quite a a, a rational um sort of hypothesis to account for what caused the the image to form um and um and that um basically um i heard that there was this Conference in uh, in Italy, which was an international uh, symposium of of scientists who have basically spent decades studying the the shroud, and um, I thought, you know, why don't I try and present it to them? And it was sort of really um, th- the most of them were far more qualified than I am in 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 science in the sense of of. Um, theoretical science in the sense that there's professors of physics there and and um, there was a statistician and uh, textile experts botanists and um, it, historians and philosophers and so on and um, basically i I just thought this is a chance to to sort of put across to them as these ideas that I had, and I was expecting that, you know, they were going to shoot me down and, and people would find, uh, try and, you know, perhaps show that, that there might have been some flaws there, but actually, um, it, it did seem to to hold water. What didn't, the, the the physicists there, um, you know, they, they weren't really contradicting any of the ideas that I was putting forward. In fact, um, there was there was one professor who was was really fascinated with the um, the connection to um, to Schrödinger and some of the the quotes that I had I had raised there, um, and uh, you know the people who suggested ways of of, of taking things a, a bit further. Um, I mean, really, I suppose um that was back in the in uh, the early nineteen eighties when I first saw the picture, and then of course there was the um there was the carbon dating towards the late nineteen eighties and after which there were a lot of people who who thought that you know oh, maybe maybe it's not genuine after all, but I mean there were always some there were some reservations about this, okay, if it had been medieval how did a medieval forger produce this artifact which we don't know how to make even using 21st century or then 20th century technology and um, even in the the same article of Nature where it was where the carbon dating study was published there was a a letter from uh, Professor Phillips from from Harvard um, high energy physics lab saying that actually the only way we can account for how this image got there was by a burst of radiant energy that came from the dead body that the the shroud wrapped, and that can affect can affect carbon-14 levels. And this was a carbon-14 dating, um, and he um, was suggesting further tests that could be done. But uh, it seems that the that the church have sort of kept the all the evidence with them, and they won't release more of the shroud to be tested unfortunately um, but then the, the the big breakthrough came um, sort of in the um, soon after the turn of the of the millennium with some wonderful work that was done by Benford and merino um, where they actually um, this was a, a couple in America that um, noticed that when they looked at uh, a sample that had been taken from near the carbon dating sample called the the, the race sample um, that it actually looked like two bits of cloth put together. And um, they um, said, hang on a minute, we know that patches have been sewn in by the nuns and after the fire damage, what if this corner of the cloth, which is where it had been held, and which incidentally, all um, all the protocols about carbon dating say you have to avoid the areas where there's been in direct contact because that's where you get contamination. But this, where it would have been held, where it would have been most damaged and actually where bits had been previously chopped off for people to sell as relics and so on. Well, um, you know, how about if the patch had been sewn in afterwards and they put this idea forward um, to, uh, and there was a expert, a very respected expert called Raymond Rogers, who's a chemist, who was on the original um Sturp, the Shroud of Turin research project and he said he was a, a scientist through and through and he, he was really you know about you know only that you should believe something if the evidence backs it up not just go for what you want to believe and he had when he first heard the carbon dating he thought okay then it's medieval and when he heard people challenging this he said right I'm gonna prove them wrong so he said I'm gonna do the test and see if this could have been a reweave and he ended up Um, you know coming out and admitting I went I intended to prove them wrong I ended up proving them right this is a reweave it's the the part that was carbon dated was a mixture of first century cloth with a 16th century patch that the that the nuns had sewn in and actually it accounts for why the uh, various labs came up with Different dates. Even the statistics say that it shouldn't have been that far out, um, because um, they had different proportions of the of the reweave in there. So um, that was that was that. Now, um, so it, all the evidence to me points to it having been um actually as is, as is claimed to have dated from from around two thousand years ago and not not seven hundred years ago, but the question is how did the image get there? You know if you look at the cloth the image is what we call a, a surface phenomenon it 's only on the surface fibers of the cloth it 's not painted on if it had been painted or there were pigment to put it on there, then you would see that the fibers would be stuck together by the by the pigment that it, that had soaked through and you would see that it was it was deeper than just the surface. but what you actually find when you do chemical analysis of of the parts that have the image is that all that has changed is that the cellulose, which forms part of the, the, the linen of the cloth, on the very topmost fibers that's less than a, a human hair's thickness, have actually changed in their chemical structure. And the only way that we can, that we can do this artificially, if you like, is we, it, you can make a similar thing happen with, with ultraviolet lasers. And there's some great research that was done by um, uh, Dr. Di Lazzaro. Uh, Who works at the um, uh, an atomic institute in one of the first, actually, in which is in uh, near Rome, and um, he found that you can actually form a similar effect on the on the cellulose using um, using ultraviolet laser. But to actually do this with an artist, even if you know, even if it had been some medieval artist who somehow had lasers, you would have needed thousands upon thousands of of Lasers to actually to actually form the image, and you 'd have to have done each spot separately, but the only way that we can actually explain how the image got there it involves a, um, one other factor which is that we, it was discovered back in the 70s that, that it 's unique amongst all amongst all photographic imprints in that it has perfect distance coded information, which implies that um, the the light that formed the the image on the cloth wasn't reflected off the body of the man. It actually came from the body of the man. That this dead body somehow shone brighter than the sun for a tiny fraction of about less than a thousand millionth of a second, and and that's what. Actually, formed the image. Now, um, it was it was only actually um, around the the turn of the between at the end of the 19th century, around 1998, when um, photography was first um, developed, that um, the the interest in the shroud really began to to take off because someone was commissioned by the church to take a photo of it. A chap called Secondopia. And when he he took the picture, he had the the negative of the of the shroud image, then he I was saying last time he nearly fainted when he looked at the negative, because the negative of the shroud is actually a perfect positive. In other words, the shroud image itself is a negative, which again fits with this radiation hypothesis or radiance hypothesis. So um, the 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 other scientists who, there who had done actually the hard empirical work of um, the of, of putting the work in and, and showing that you know how the um, the uh, the the cloth could have been changed by the radiation or the radiance from the body. Um, then what my talk was about was to put forward a suggestion, if you like, a, a speculation for people to to consider and see what they thought about about how does that happen how does a, a dead body shine brighter than the sun now um the the interesting thing about this is that we have to to sort of consider, you know, who was this man that that actually formed the image? And then when the forensic pathologists who have looked at it and all the other scientists, it's a bit like a a sort of CSI, if you like. They're looking at all the evidence and trying to piece together what what actually happened. And um, looking at the evidence from, for example, pollen grains that have been found on the shroud, it's been found that it had to have been in around the Jerusalem area and had to have been there around March or April for it to have got the certain pollens that are only found in that, in, in that area um, and that come out at that at that time of year and so then um, who who is this person that's shown well it shows the body of a man that had been had been tortured he'd been whipped very cruelly with with um, and if you look closely at the marks that were made by the whip, the um, sort of archaeology, uh, the forensic pathologists can fit it exactly to what they have of uh, that they've uh, recovered of uh, a Roman Roman whip from around that time that were called flagrum. That actually had these these three round metal balls on them that were designed to inflict maximum pain and an injury, and they can find exactly the the marks from these that he'd been whipped many 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 times, and the, the, there's even the blood flow from each of those um, each of those separate marks. So he'd been he'd been whipped. He'd been um, also he'd be, had a, a sharp object like a cap of. Of thorns had been had been placed on top of his head, and there was blood coming down from from there. And then his his um, his wrists and his feet had been impaled in a in a crucifixion position, and. Um, Interestingly, in medieval times, all the depictions of crucifixion show the nails through the hands. But modern anatomists and and forensic pathologists know that wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have, it would have got just, the weight of the body would have just torn right through. It would have had to have been the wrist, exactly as it is on the shroud. And in fact, if you have the nails through the wrist, it goes through a a nerve, which um, anatomists call the median nerve, which when you stimulate it, such as by, by sticking a nail into it, for example, would make the thumb move across the palm of the hand so that, it, as, as you actually see on the shroud image, you can't see the thumbs because they're, they're, they're hidden behind the hand because of this effect that would have happened on his, his median nerve. Now, if you look at the the flow of blood from the wrists, it exactly follows the positions that the man would have been in in crucifixion, in in two positions: one where he's hanging, and one where he's pulling himself up to to breathe, if you like. And it actually shows it actually shows both. Um, it's just I mean, I could I could I could go on for hours just about the the physical evidence on the shroud that that points to it. Interestingly, being. A, a unique thing that fits with the historical character, who was known then uh, as, uh, as we believe, Yeshua ben ben Yosef he would have been called, because that's the Hebrew Aramaic um, version of, of of the of the name, and it fits exactly with what, what happened, and even down to the, um, impa- the the piercing of of the of the side of his of his body. And the mixture of fluids there—the the sort of uh, pleural fluid mixed with mixed with blood from. Um, from where he'd been, where he'd been stabbed there, and this is this is knowledge of anatomy that goes way past, you know, even what people like Leonardo had. And interestingly, the shroud is is known to have been exhibited as the shroud, um, you know, way before uh, Da Vinci was even born. So, I mean, much as I as I respect his genius and I love his his art. This is something that I really don't believe that um Da Vinci could have done and and and, and modern modern scientists and, and artists still can't do now in the in the twentieth century. So so then we were left with this um conundrum, if you like. Um okay, so this seems to identify the, the man on whose image is on the cloth as being his, the historical Jesus. Is it just coincidence that this unique event in human history, where, uh, as far as we know unique at least, where uh, a dead body shone brighter than the, the sun, is actually fitting in with, the, the, with the, the historical nature of the one human being who has had the most impact in in many ways in human history and i I'd, I'd like to make it very clear at this point that that i i don't i'm not saying this in any sense in any in any um religious way at all um i, I mean for me what how what how what jesus taught and how he lived they they sort of speak for themselves whatever um whatever any church might do or claim to do in in his name and, and sometimes, you know, some sometimes some terrible things have been have been done in in history by by churches. But that's not him doing it. This is just people people doing it. You know, claiming to be in his name. And if you actually look at at um, his attitude towards organised religion, in a sense, he did have a, a great sort of um, reverence for for what. It was what it represented, if you like um this um this central ethic relating to what he called the 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 father of 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 all mankind if you like um and in the sense that that um when he he went into the the temple he was he was he was awestruck and so Disappointed with with the way that um, human beings had um, had had what they had done to 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 a, to a message and how they had distorted it to to suit their own needs and to be honest, I think he, he might well be the same in if he went into a into a modern church. Interestingly, although I'm not um, aligned to any denomination of um, of of. Um, religion, but I've got a, a good friend who's a who's a Catholic priest who himself admits that actually, that what what Jesus was saying back then to the Sanhedrin, he he might well be saying, he might well be saying now to to the modern church, um, and in fact he, he's he's told his his congregation as much that um, that hypocrisy hasn't hasn't gone away really, but uh, but I'm sort of. Um, diverting a little bit from, from the, the Shroud topic. I mean, as I say, the, the, the fascinating thing is, is there a connection between what he taught and how he lived his life and this, this image on the cloth and this is where something um, that, that Nigel actually wrote about in a, in a manuscript of a book that he hasn't yet published, but I'm really looking forward to, to being published, um, hopefully in the, at some point in the future. He was talking about uh, a connection between mind and matter, in which he, he put forward this um, suggestion, uh, speculation if you like, but it makes a lot of sense to me, that what if matter, is simply frozen light, and what if light is frozen thought? so in that sense, matter itself is frozen thought now at first sight that or first hearing that sounds like a bit of a bizarre thing to say that you know we think of um of thought as something that arises out of a arrangement of atoms, so you have a brain and that makes thinking but interestingly quantum theory actually in many ways suggests the opposite, more aligned to what Nigel was saying, in that it says that the observer has to exist, has to be there as a conscious observer in order for matter to be real at all in the first place. So that until you actually look at something, if it's an electron or an atom or whatever, it doesn't actually exist in any given state at all. It's just possibilities, potentials. And those potentials become real through being experienced or, or observed. And this is where, um, the listeners may want to, to look this up on the internet for more, more sort of detail uh, about it, if they're, if they're curious about it, but about um, Schrodinger's cat. This idea that until someone looks into the box, the cat is, is neither alive nor dead. It's somehow, it's somehow both that um of course, this doesn't allow for the possibility that the cat itself might have consciousness, but it's it's just showing the um the the basic principle that that it's consciousness that makes something. Have be in a particular state, as opposed to being in lots of possible states all at once. And you can actually um, do experiments, and they've been being done for for many decades in quantum theory, that actually demonstrate that this is that this is actual fact. That actually. Um, an electron can go two ways at once until you actually measure it and, um, and you can actually prove that, that it could have done and depending on how much you can know about it from looking at it, that influences what it can be again, I, I won't go into, into too much scientific detail but it's, it's all out there if, if, anyone wants to, if anyone wants to look it up because in, in a way, do you feel
0: that if, if there was no observers in this reality then mm-hmm. it would collapse
1: uh, for it to be a reality, um, reality implies that there has to it has to be uh, it has to be experienced as as real, and and this is something that that Schrödinger pointed out actually that that he took it a bit further than just saying it, uh, a lo- it sort of relates to to subatomic particles and so on. He said, "Hang on a minute, this actually includes not just." matter, but space and time themselves. Uh, there's a fascinating thing, uh, and I, I'm sort of paraphrasing him here, but the fascinating thing about mind is that mind is always, in quotes, now. The word now, that we have a present tense. The equations in science, um, as, as um, Einstein pointed out, would imply that past, present and future, they're just relative that actually the whole kit and caboodle if you like, the whole universe from big bang to a heat death or cold death it it's all much of a muchness, there's nothing to make any particular moment privileged to be now or to even have a, a concept of now or to have this idea that time is flowing or that you know what was past and what, what is ha- now present will be past and what is future will will then be present these these ideas of moving through time, these are all subjective. The equations don't actually speak about these at all. And yet, as conscious observers, we all experience them every single moment, by definition, for it to be a moment. And what Schrodinger pointed out is that, actually, we're not just making the electron real, we're making time real. And what, what does that mean? If, if time is the product of mind, he, he reasoned, then, Mind can't be a product of time, logically, and it makes sense that that it fits in that that the mind cannot have begun at any moment in time, and also no moment in time can be its undoing. It cannot end, because to end means it's changing. It's changing in time, but time is only there because the mind exp- it was there to make it so, and so a wonderful um, conclusion derives from this that actually mind is eternal and that means that everybody is every everyone if you like interestingly the distinction between everyone and everybody but everyone is is eternal our bodies aren't eternal our bodies begin we're conceived and that's when our bodies start as us and then we we're born we live our lives our bodies die but the mind cannot die according to that and this this fits in, in a wonderful way with um, some research that's been done by, um, and this is research being done by physicians and scientists into into the near death experience. Um, I had the privilege to, um, to meet a, a great scientist and, and neuropsychiatrist by the name of um, Dr. Peter Fenwick a few years back, and he's done some, some wonderful research into this. And actually showed him the the manuscript of um of the book I was talking about that that Nigel has written, and he found it he found it fascinating that um, he's done some research that 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 shows that when the the brain stops, as in a cardiac arrest situation, in many instances the people have this um this experience of being be outside of their body, their mind being outside their body looking at what's happening now this is even blind people have had this experience and they've had it when the brain waves are completely flat and they've been able to describe details that are very specific to their own particular resuscitation that they couldn't have known about unless they'd been conscious to witness it while their brain had stopped and the the conclusion that that the, the, the many researchers are coming into, coming to from this is that actually the mind doesn 't need the brain to exist now, not to say we don 't use our brains and you know they're not they 're not vital while we're while we 're physically alive and as a doctor, I would you know do do what i can to to help keep help people keep their brains healthy and, and so on but it 's also always with the perspective that that, that while we we may as as doctors always try our best to uh, obviously we we work on improving quality of life and and also we try and you know uh, protect people's lives and 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 cure diseases and so on, um, and I would always continue doing that. I, I would never you know support suicide or euthanasia or anything like that because I don't believe anyone can know when another person's or their own best time to, to die is. So, despite the fact that, that, um, that, we, that we're always trying to do this, I, at the back of my mind is this sense uh, that even then, when we, when we do die, that actually it's not the end and um uh, actually a lot of um, Fennec's work and and similar uh, research um that has been done in um it, by psychologists in in collaboration with with Buddhist scientists for example is to be found in in a in a lot of um hospices up and down the country um where um people and and Fennec makes this point that we need to um, we need to go m- more in in medical training to look at more the sort of spiritual side of of man, not just the the mechanical side of man. But but that being the case, to come back to the the shroud again, how does this fit in to the to the image on the shroud? Well, the the one other thing that I just one more quote I'd like to make from shredding, and not to try and labour the point too much, but. Um, if if we're eternal, if we didn't have a beginning, but the universe did have a beginning, and the universe had a beginning when everything was all one, all together, um, with no space, time or matter, if you like, well, what does that mean? It means that we were once, all together, in a timeless state. And that timeless state, if it's timeless, means in a sense we are still all together. And yet, we're, we're living in this, in this separated out, physical universe. How does that work? How does that happen? Well, the one thing, the one thing that, that science looks at, in most cases, is this linear uh, cause and effect relationship between what happens and, and what happened before, where force determines what happens. You kick a football, you, you feel that if you kick it hard, you feel a hard Push on your on your toe where you where you kicked it. Uh, its action is equal and opposite a reaction, and you make a change happen in the ball, so it so it moves. A force acts, and it makes change. Now, at the beginning, before a physical universe happened, there was no matter, space, or time. There was no force. Now, what then would cause anything to happen from within that state? Now, interestingly, if force is what makes things happen that have to happen in the way that the force dictates is there the possibility that there's another effect that determines what happens which is non-force if you like, the opposite of force and I believe there there is such a thing and I think actually in a way most if not all human beings believe that it's there because we have to, we're using it every single day of our lives and we call it free choice to have free will implies that nothing forces you to make the decision that you made. It implies that, that you made it freely and your choice that you have chosen is the cause. It's a prime cause, as philosophers would call it, it's a beginning cause rather than being caused by something else. So in that sense, what if, from this altogether state, what if we had actually chosen to experience separation from the separate point of view, in, in so doing, the only way you can have separation you have to have space space is simply the separation of points and if that thought to be separate is what if you like crystallizes into, into matter through through light and um, uh, light interestingly is in, and um, again, I, I, I won't go into too much detail here, but people can can look this up in the something called the the time dilation equation. Um, light is, in many ways, the speed of light, is, if you like, the interface, the uh, between our temporal time timely state of existence, if you like, and the eternal state of existence. And at the Big Bang, we know that originally there was nothing in the sense of no thing. And then there was what the, the scientists refer to as a photon-dominated universe, light, if you like. And then there was then there was matter, and matter in separation, making an expanding universe. That everything everything moves apart. So what um, Nigel was suggesting in his in his manuscript is actually that the universe was set in motion not by a creator god, like the on the Sistine Chapel this. You know a big white man in the sky pointing his finger, and making things happen. That's our anthropomorphized making God in the image of, of man, and only some men at that. No, this is the, this is the, the final of, of all absolutes that implies the, the total potential of what all human beings can, can achieve and, can, and have come from. In, in total potential of of all-knowingness, if you like, because if it's all one, and if each of us has our own little bit of the puzzle, our own little way of knowing, if it was all one, and it had no no limitations, because it had no space or time to be limited in, it had to be all-knowing. What if we chose to come away from that, and in so doing, we made this momentum of separation that made what, what scientists refer to as the second law of thermodynamics, everything breaks apart, everything goes into... More and more states of chaos and, and brokenness, and that would manifest itself in, in in human qualities in our in our minds of things like um, selfishness materialism nationalism racism you know all these isms that, that divide basically that um, that try to um, that miss our, our true nature, and this is perhaps what great teachers like the Buddha and, and, and Jesus and, and others were, were, were talking about by saying things like, love your neighbor as yourself, it's not a, a platitude to be, to be goody-goody it's actually a simple mathematical statement of fact, you know, listen guys, your neighbor is yourself you you're all one wake up it's not it's not like you think it is you're 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 seeing the world through a dis- very distorted lens it's not it's not what you think you're you're all one and this actually fits interestingly with, with a lot of people's experience in the in their near death experiences when they have their what's known as a, a life review that they they often see a a being that's with them, that's guiding them but not judging them, it's it's just guiding them through what they're experiencing and they they experience their lives and what they've done and often they experience them from the point of view of the other person so anything they did kindly towards another person they feel that kindness coming towards them anything they did spiteful or harmful towards another person they feel what that was like to have it happen to you and and this is giving a clue to the fact that actually, fundamentally, we are all one in, in the basic nature of what we are as human beings, as conscious beings. You can define it by two, um, two paradigms, if you like. The input and the output, if you like. There's awareness, that's how we know anything, and will, which is what we do. And all that's different between different, different individuals is what we're aware of, what memories we have, our individual patterns of memory and knowing and awareness and understanding and actions, what we actually do, how we use our will. But fundamentally, those two principles are the same. All that's different is what we write on it. And um, Nigel's speculation is that what we call a soul, for want of a better word, and I, I don't think he likes that word much better than I do, it's, it's, it sort of clouds things in, in a sense because it, it sort of brings all kinds of religious connotations on it that aren't needed and aren't, aren't often meant, that, um, mm. that actually all that is is a is a summary of these patterns of the writing that we've made the writing in shadow if you like that we've made on that light once we take all that away once we take all the ego and restrictions away so that it's just light so that it's not limited then there's nothing to demarcate self from other if you like we we would all be one and you know um Jesus often referred to himself as the son of man, and he referred to, to God as being the father. He said, you're our father, talking to, to everyone. So, and, and he said, you know, is it not written, you are God. So he was always actually trying to, to show the, the potential of, of of all human beings that they could actually and he actually said as much that they can do anything that he does any human being is capable of doing even better than he did that human beings are capable of doing so these aren't these aren't the words of someone who was after power or was after um, anything for himself he was always trying to to, to show the grandeur and, and potential and size of, of all human beings so that we could recognize it in ourselves perhaps now, to come back to the, the shroud image, if the separation at the, uh, at the beginning of the universe that actually coalesced atoms out of light from this initial thought, through these momentums that separate, what if you could reverse that? What if you could live a life that was always acting out of compassion and, and caring in and, and wise ways to, to point out the, the ways that you can actually achieve the unionizing if you like to to uh, put us, cast aside all the all, all the, the the limited restricted ways of 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 looking at things that just that just limit you into into ignorance basically and i mean um, the, interestingly um the the words that he spoke about in terms of change um, the was translated. Um, from the Aramaic to the Greek and then the Greek to all the other languages and um, in English we called it repent it Ca- came from the Greek root metanoite which of course um, as many people already know that literally just means change your mind it doesn't mean you you, you pay money to someone or say a hundred Hail Marys or, um, or or sort of torture yourself to, to make yourself suffer and feel guilty it just says if you've been thinking in a way that limits you Understand that and undo that limitation and see the broader picture, see it for what it is. And if you can see through that that all human beings have, have limitless capability. And uh, there's an interesting uh, analogy of this that actually, again, Nigel pointed out to me um, you know, a long time ago, that all you need to do is a little... Um, it's a demonstration of this for oneself, is to, to look out at the, at the night sky and you can see billions upon billions of little dots of light, each of them are stars or, or galaxies that, that you can see, you can see shining in the, in the distance and planets. Now, all of those are contained in your mind's eye, if you like, you're aware of that whole thing and yet none of it, except for if any of it contains life like you do, none of the deadness of it of the of galaxies or whatever, none of them can can know you or can know themselves or can know anything so just in that one illustration, you can see the the hugeness and immensity of any one human being and and it fits with what um, Schrodinger was saying as well that even the whole of time and space and uh, all comes down to uh, to one any one sentient individual is capable of making that real or or not now um, the the point about the shroud and the point about the the, the man who who formed it is that he was showing uh, a way that was countervailing to the this entropic drift that was separating all the time he was he was uniting at each moment and what if our our the tension if you like the force in our atoms is the result of our Restriction, and as we undo that restriction, then we begin begin to loosen the bonds, if you like. To if you, the way, the analogy that I, the way I like to see it is, is is like a a knot that is tight, and you undo that knot as you loosen it, it begins to to cut the knot begins to come apart. But it's different to what happens in. Um, in particle accelerators and so on, where you just flow, point a flamethrower at the at the knot and, and you just get lots of little bits of ash coming out of it, which are little little particles. But this is actually undoing it. And um, an interesting point that, that I mentioned at, at my talk was that if you were to release all the matter as um, as light from the dead body of a man, then you know, the physicists might well raise the question, but hang on a minute. That would even a even an, an atom bomb w- um, releases only a tiny amount of matter. Interestingly, um, the um, the amount of matter, if you released all the matter from from a, a mustard seed as energy, that would be enough energy to move a mountain. Interestingly enough, from E equals m c squared. So you you can see how. Um, how much huge amount of energy is contained in a tiny bit of matter, but that's releasing it as in the way of, of burning the burning the knot if you like. What if you're actually undoing the tension of it? Now, this tied in with um, something that, that Stephen Hawking um, actually wrote um, in his book, um, Brief History of Time, that that scientists quite rightly are um, quite uh, stuck to this idea of the conservation of energy, that you can't just, you don't just make energy out of nothing or, or destroy it completely and it disappears into, rather than coming into another form. What Hawking said is, actually that's true um, but it doesn't, it's not a contradiction with the universe coming from nothing because with all the force and tension of the universe gravity cancels it all out, the gravity in the universe so what it then suggests then is that if you can reduce the force where you are, if you can reduce the tension where you are, remember we're saying force is the product of this, this initial separation, this restriction, this limitation, if you can undo it by becoming freer, remember we're saying that freedom happens where force is less, so if you can reduce it then perhaps you start to reduce gravity and this would fit in in a wonderful way in in certain anecdotal reports, and not just anecdotal in terms of the shroud because we've got physical evidence for it, but that. Um, the, for example, the um, Siddhartha Gautama, also known as the Buddha, was seen to rise above the ground at certain points after he was enlightened and there was um, someone called uh, Teresa of Avila who was also said to have um, risen above the ground and, and Jesus himself was reported to have risen above the ground. Now, some research done by one of my colleagues at the, who was at this uh, conference, uh, Dr, Dr. Gilbert Lavoie, another physician actually shows that if you look at the image on the cloth the image was formed while the body wasn 't lying down flat on the slab with the back of it being pressed flat against the the slab. It was actually vertical it was vertical and not even standing it was suspended above the air. You can tell from the image on the on the feet and you can tell from the fact that the the back of the the body isn 't isn 't compressed and flattened against the slab, and also that the hair is coming down vertically rather than backwards behind the behind the head so that that would fit with uh, he was reducing force, so he was reducing gravity, so his release of light from his body wasn 't a huge explosion it was just a shining if you like of this of this bright light that coming from every single millimeter of his of, of his body that actually formed the image on the cloth now interestingly there's there 's three components to to what you can see on the on the cloth there 's um, There's marks that have been made there by by a fire in the around, I think, the 16th century and then patches were sewn in after that by by the nuns to cover those areas and there was water that was spilt on it at that time. Then there's red marks on it which for a long time people were speculating what are those red marks and those have been analyzed and they've been found to be male human blood which provisionally we're saying um, looks like it's group AB. We're not totally sure of the blood group because apparently um, archaeologists have pointed out that that the blood group can can change. Um, that with time, if you leave blood exposed, it will it might look to be AB if it wasn't. But anyway, it's it's male human blood is is on the is on the the blood that marks that are on the shroud, and they're not just painted on as blood. They've actually come off the um, by direct contact from the body of the man, and um, interestingly, from looking at the pattern of the blood stains, you can see that um, that they would have gone on the, the body while it was wrapped around the, the face, for example, and then um, when the actual image was formed, remember it's got perfect distance coded information, the, the, the cloth would have been flat, like it was just sus- sort of suspended there, if you like, like a flat sheet in, in front of the, and behind the, the body and um, because the, the blood marks that would have gone on there when it was on his face are now imprinted where the, the image is showing his hair and this is another point that, that Lavoie made that the, actually the cloth must have, been, must have been flat, so he was vertical, he was suspended above the ground and he was shining brighter than the sun. Now I mean, you know, for many people this could, could well fit with, with this being uh, an actual sort of photographic evidence, if you like, of two things that are uh, are referred to in historical reports of the time. One is this idea of the the resurrection, the empty tomb, that they came back and and found the tomb empty apart from the shroud. the other is this phenomenon known as the, the transfiguration, which is where um, he actually demonstrated this earlier on in his life, where he, he took three of his friends up a, a, a mountain and wrote, said to have risen above the ground, and again the, the words say that he shone brighter than the sun, which is what the scientists and the physicists are now saying that he would have had to have do, done to, to get the, the imprint on the cloth. So what this is perhaps suggesting is that there is a way that human beings have the potential to actually completely overcome everything material in this in this world. And of course, uh, Nigel in his in his in his books refers to this um, this alien phenomenon, which is um, basically, uh, um, uh, in, in some time, in some ways, he says it's a, it's a, you can see it as a metaphor. If you like, look at where our our science is is going now, and technology is going, that um, we're in our materialism is going. That uh, basically, people have this idea that that robots or machines or computers can do things better than people can, and people have this idea that you can um, the way to to because they they've they've lost sight of this idea of. The mind as a non-physical thing being eternal, so they try to. They don't want to end. They don't when they die, but they think they're going to end. So they want to somehow download their their minds because they see their minds in in a, a sort of very um, naive way, if you like, as being like software that somehow download that into a machine and then send the machine out into space, and that's how you continue. That's what Arthur Clarke, Arthur C. Clarke, wrote about. Now. Um, it seems Niger actually well he did he knew him, him personally, and um apparently um, Arthur Clarke actually um sort of went back on that in in later times this 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 idea but but he he did write about this in in um, in his younger times um, this idea that that was the way for human beings to survive because we know that the the earth isn 't going to last forever and isn 't going to sustain humanity forever, and so he he saw mankind surviving into the stars by by, da- by in a sort of robotic sense now of course anyone with any with any common sense even knowledge of what a mind is, of what awareness is will know that you can't do that, you can't upload your mind into a machine I mean if you had a certain program software in a computer that made it have a something that was a parody of your memories, would it be a a, a crime of murder to to unplug the computer there's no mind there's no there's no sentience there's no awareness to to make that come alive if you like there's no there's no ghost in the machine to actually actually experience any of that and in in quantum terms it's not it's not an observer so i mean this, if if we accept what um, what astronomers are predicting that there are actually many many um, planets in, in the, even just let alone in our galaxy, let alone the whole universe, that are capable of sustaining life, then then some of them will probably have have done this, but done it with with uh, attempted to do this with with robots, but to a much higher level of technology than than we're capable of, and that these kind of things would um, would. Be programmed to try and continue as long as they can, and they would they would recognise that actually, um, if they're if they're able to recognise in a in a human being that there's something unique there, a little fingerprint, if you like, of a of an individual mind. Uh, uh, line connection connecting back to the to the beginning of the universe then if a, a person dies and then they see that pattern coming back again if you like um, akin to to reincarnation which again a lot of researchers are coming to the conclusion that that this is that this is probably True, because, you know, the, these past life memories that people have that can be verified that they couldn't have known about and it makes sense if what Schrodinger said is true that the mind doesn't end and if we're, if we still, if we haven't, you know, if we still have our restrictions so we can't just coalesce back to that original light that we all came from, then where do we go? and it would make sense that, you know, perhaps we, we do come out, if they see that then they can see a way of continuing, if you like, that they don't have, but that they would would like to get hold of, and that's where his idea of sort of piggybacking onto it comes from with trying to to make um imprint human beings with their with their um, technology in such a way that that they in their um ignorant well, it's not even ignorant because to be ignorant you have to be sentient but in in their uninformed way um they think. Is, is going to, or the, the the program would suggest, is going to give them some kind of continuance. Well, um, that being, if that being that were the case, it would fit as we were saying with the with the uh, fascinating story, which is also reported in the in the New Testament, that this this creature took Jesus, that, that is known as the um, as Satan, which is a a mythological character who is um, said to have. have have fallen from the sky at one point, which is, which is interesting, um, that, that this, that this um, character or this this object called Satan took him to a high point where he could see all the cities of the earth and said, I can give you all of these. Now you can only see all the cities of the earth from uh, you know, at a time, from space and um, so this thing that actually must have had to have taken him up into space, so in a way, that's a little bit of evidence that, uh, um, amongst a lot of other evidence, that does actually point to to some veracity um, in 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 Nigel's um, you know thesis about about what was happening with the graves. But as he says, it's a you can you can see it as a as a metaphor for um, for the. How, how is our existence as humanity? What could threaten it? And one thing that could threaten it is our headlong rush into, into technology that makes us forget who we are, what we are as, as human beings so that we, we lose sight of that and we try to, um, to end up with a, with a planet just, just peopled with, with machines rather than, rather than living beings and um i think that to me that's the 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 point about the what the man on the the shroud was showing is it is another way that's that's opposite to that that um you know like like he said about and again I, i'm really sorry if this sounds religious but to me it's it's not religious this is science and mathematics he was talking about um don't put your focus and your, your, your intentions upon things that break down. He was talking about entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, he was talking about rust breaking things down, he was talking about moths eating things away and thieves coming and taking them away um, that, well, what's the thief coming to take away? This is actually interestingly That fits with the the, the title of, of Nigel's book of, of what, the kind of threats that you can face in this in this um, in this universe that, that that Nigel was referring to. Now, um, he said, don't. He was suggesting, don't you know, stick yourself to this universe with all these threats, but find. Another way where things last, where you can last forever, where there's no moths and no rust and no thieves, where you can actually be be eternal, beyond limit, and perhaps, if if you, we do that, if we can do it enough, then then perhaps we're able to do just as he promised. We can do exactly what he did, and we can we can actually break free of this. Of this um restriction that makes us keep having to come back here and interestingly, this is an idea that has been around for for thousands of years um you know even before jesus the the idea that that we're we're stuck in this in this wheel the cycle of of rebirth, and that the way to to get past it is to is to stop being limited to our restricted Selves, our our egos, if you like, and and find the the compassion that you discover through realizing that that everyone is is you, that that all all human beings and all sentient beings fundamentally are are one, and that anything that happens to any of them is is like happening to you. So that the the best way to help yourself is to is actually to is to help others to, and the in the example that. That uh, Yeshua himself gave. That was um, when he was asked to sum up, and I'm, I'm in a way, it's, uh, though it's sad, the the um, to think about the situation that he was put in, where he was asked this question, but that he was asked that question, so that he's given us the answer to it. What, what was what, when he was asked by I, th- I think it was by by Zera, um, what is he? What do you, you know, what's your aim? What's your mission? What are you trying to do here? And he said. I was born for one reason and one reason only, to bear witness to the truth. So he wasn't there to start a religion. He wasn't there to make um, followers or to, to get praise or um, to, you know, to get people to thank him or to, or to ask his forgiveness or anything like that. He just simply came in a neutral sense, like a, like a good scientist would, if you like, to actually um, point out, look, this is what sense shows you. This is what reason points to. Everything in this world is breaking apart. It doesn't last. All of you can see. Even two thousand years ago, people could see that that you know that they die. They, they, their bodies don't go on forever. So, is there another way that we can go on forever? And this is what he was he was addressing this idea that that there's a that there's another way um, beyond the physical. And interestingly. In terms of this continuance past death, there there are many references to um, to reincarnation that are, that are there in the New Testament. Apparently, there was this um, wife of a Roman emperor, and as you may know, the the Roman Empire sort of um, sort of tried to to take over the the teachings of Jesus and tell people a particular interpretation of it that they had to believe, and and this Roman emperor's wife. Um, was apparently told by a, a soothsayer that she'd been a witch in a past life, and so she said, uh, "Husband, her name was Theodora. Apparently, I think her husband was uh, Emperor Justinian." Um, you know, you have to take out all references to reincarnation. Well, they didn't quite manage all of them, because um, they, if you look in the in the New Testament, then um, then people were saying, you know, but how can the Messiah come when? Um, when people know that before the Messiah comes, Elijah will come back and, and Jesus says to them, well, Elijah has been, but you, you knew him not, you didn't recognize him and, and then the text says that they understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist Now, what does that mean? How can Elijah, who was someone who had lived a thousand years ago have come back as John the Baptist, unless reincarnation is true? And it's actually, it's in all the religions, every single one of them, at at some point, have, um, of course, the Hindus and and Buddhists and and I think the Sikhs and uh, some others still do, um, you know, still hold to this this concept of reincarnation. It's been there in all of them and it would make perfect sense in terms of how we continue, but what I believe, People like Jesus and the Buddha, and people like uh, Muhammad and Abraham and Zoroaster, and many others, have, um, and possibly some of the, you know, I'm sure the um, ancient uh, Hindu teachers as well, um, were were pointing to, is that there's a there's a way that we can that we can live our lives that means that we don't have to ever come back in this into this world again that we can escape to a, to a universe where there's no suffering, there's no pain, there's no disease, there's no old age that you can be forever in, in a perfect sense of, of, of complete knowing and that it's not something that is granted to you by a, by a God who's handing out rewards and punishments that actually we ourselves, all individual beings are that God in potential and all we have to do is realize that potential, and then we don't get granted it by God, we become God, if you like. And this is this idea that, um, that Jesus was saying, my father and I are one and the same. But he, he referred to him as, as our father. He, he, was talking, he was saying that he was, he was everyone's father. So he wasn't, I believe, trying to set himself up as someone to be worshipped. You know, quite the opposite. He was trying to show every single human being what they were capable of—that they can do—and he even said as much, word for word, that anything that he does, that they can do also. And that, for me, is the is the wonder of this this object in that I, in Turin. I've seen it twice now. I saw it in um, in the exposition. I think it was in uh, ninety seven or ninety eight, and then um, uh, again in um, in uh, two thousand and ten um and you know um it's it it's really it is awe inspiring there's there's nothing like it no other object in our in our world that that even that even comes close that that something that has been around for 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 2000 years has something on it that modern science can't make and actually know it's just for me it's incredible that that uh, incredible in the sense of amazing not not unbelievable that that this actually um you know has a, a connection back to this historical person who who did and said all these things and and you know many of the of the the scientists who who studied the shroud and have studied the shroud have have been have been skeptics. The, the, the original Shroud of Turin research project You know, a lot of them, like me, they were Jewish, you know, they, they had no um, axes to grind about saying, you know, this is uh, the, the, the founder of the church or, um, or anything like that. They were just looking at it as scientists, just as, just as I've done and um, you, you just, the more you study it, you just can't help but come to the conclusion that this thing is genuine. It's actually it's 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 not made by human hands as in as in painted, but it is made by, by humanity, by the by the ultimate potential of, of humanity that that any of us can can achieve. And so I, I I never cease to be be fascinated by it.
0: Yeah, I mean, do you see that there's there's elements in the scientific community or even uh, religious groups that might not want to endorse the shroud of Turing? You know, it could be a threat to certain people's um, beliefs?
1: Well um, yeah I mean that's that's quite possible but if, if anyone um, comes at me with any criticism or evidence against the Shroud then I have to be careful to try to be objective and not say oh you're just saying that because you're, you know, coming from this particular point of view or you're a part of this group or you wouldn't want it to be true. I always the, the the safe way for me to look at this, I think, is to just consider the points that they're making in in reason and see if 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 they contradict what I'm saying, um if they show me that actually, you know, that I'm completely wrong, then I have to, you know, put my hand down and say, yeah. I was wrong, but if not, if I if I can answer their points and and they can't logically, irrationally find fault in what I'm saying, then I don't mind that they don't agree with me. In fact, in fact, I, I think they they <laughs> and I hope this doesn't sound patronizing because they can not agree. They're, they're they're blessed. They have they have free choice. That's what makes human beings so special. They don't have to all believe a certain thing or, or do a certain thing, they're, 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 sh- they're demonstrating to me the grandeur of their humanity by deciding to take a point of view, whether it's, whether it's right or not, and if I think it's not right, then it, the onus is on me to try and show rationally why, why it's not right. So yeah, possibly that some people might have vested interest to want it to be false or true, but... Um, but for me, I, I just like to look at it as objectively as I can in a, from a, a scientific sense and, um, and just look at the points that people make and, without trying to cast aspersions on, on, on why they're making it. So far though um, the people who, who want to say it's, it's a forgery, they're, you know, they, they, haven't, they just haven't come up with anything that makes any, any sense, because it can't be done now. And the, the people who say it can, they can't actually produce the evidence that, mm. that it can. Not, not with all the characteristics, distance-coded information, uh, only there on the surface fibres and, so and so on and so on and so on and all the details and everything. Yeah. So where, where's it going now? Is
0: there, is there like a crescendo building in the awareness of the Shroud? Because, I mean, at one point it was spread across all the news and everyone was made aware of the Shroud of Turing and then it kind of disappeared off the radar for a while.
1: And, and oh. I guess people like yourself have never really let it go, have you? And that's right, yeah. But, um, well, I think... Um, The um, the expositions of the shroud that happened um, around the the turn of the millennium um, have sort of in a sense brought it back to public awareness, and I think the um, you know as I I was referring to earlier the great work of um, of uh, Benford and Marino Sue Benford sadly uh, passed away um, a few years back after after they um, they you know. they published their, their research, but but, but um, John Marino is still going, and, and you know he's got all the evidence to back him up. Basically, that the that the carbon dating was flawed, and even even one of the um, researchers from the um, Oxford Radiocarbon Lab himself is saying that no, actually I think we need to do more tests because um, it just can't be right. It can't have been medieval because how could it have been? F- it goes against all the other evidence. About the shroud um, the, to say that, and he wants more work to be done, unfortunately, the current um, custodians of the of the shroud in the in the um, that part of the Catholic Church that that deals with it um they they called back all the 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 samples that had been given out. And they're, they're, for the moment, at least, they're not—they're not, they're not um, sort of allowing further further carbon testing to be done. What what um, we uh, scientists have su- suggested is that there are um, parts of the because yes, it's true, it is a destructive process to do carbon dating, but there are bits of the cloth um, that don't bear image and that lie, for example, underneath the bits that were bits that were patched up not the patches themselves but the cloth that was underneath the patch and things like that could be could be dated even the um i think someone was saying that where it was burnt that you've got you've got a good source of of carbon there that you could that you could um that you could take out and and date and there's lots of things that, that that could be done um but um in the end people say well how what will it take to prove that it's that it's genuine i think if people Really want to to not believe it's genuine, then there's no amount of, of proof that can um, that can prevail a- upon them. Because at the end of the day, as I'm saying, people have the right and the capacity to choose to believe what they what they want to. And yes, they might try and counter that back and say, "Yeah, but we can't prove to you it's false, despite all the evidence." Well. Uh, I mean that there isn't evidence that it's false. It was it was carbon dated, but the carbon dating has been shown and even accepted by this, you know, eminent uh, chemist I was talking about, uh, uh, Ray Rogers, and and the chap from the radiocarbon lab at Oxford himself, who who suggested that that further work needs to be done. If it was forged, how was it forged? Why is there no um, paint or, or pigment in the in the actual image and? you know how how was it done? i think the um the, there's this is one artifact in in history that has one of the the most amount of accumulated evidence in favor of it being genuine of of, of any um and um yeah i'm i keep an open mind about it, but for me it's it, it's so compelling the the evidence that that this is actually genuine and uh, as i say it's just it's it's just awe inspiring to me that that such a thing exists as as scientific evidence that we can actually you know we can see we can um we can actually we can measure and we can verify and whatever type of science we put on it whether it's the you know the botanist looking at the pollen whether it's the forensic pathologist looking at it the anatomists the the physiologists the the physicists the textile experts. The, um the statisticians looking at the, the radiocarbon evidence and and so on at the just at this one symposium that I went to there were scientists from so many different um, different fields of study and historians as well um, and apparently um, the um, the 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 shroud was in its in the earlier part of its life it, there's some evidence to suggest that it was it was known as the mandillion, that it was actually it was actually folded over many times and it was just the 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 face that was visible because um it was it was forbidden in those times in that culture to have anything connected with a, with a dead body like a shroud of an imprint of a, a of a man and so um it, it's thought that that's where all the um you know the the where this idea of what Jesus looked like that it actually actually comes from the shroud from from what people saw on the shroud that rather than the shroud being a copy by done by an artist when no artist even now knows how to to do such a thing that a lot of art is actually copied from that that that's where people get this this idea of of um, his features and you know how his his hair and his beard and and um and all of that yeah it is
0: incredible I mean if you come across the accounts of Tibetan monks you know in in recent times that that have allegedly sort of gone into a ball of light yes and kind of ascended if you like out of our Mm. reality
1: yeah um they say that um that some uh some llamas when they die that they 're not supposed to touch the body and um there are um, anecdotal um, reports that the that they they're left alone in a in a hut if you like, and that this hut, this hut starts to shine um, and um then when they come back the body's gone there's just um they just find hair and nails and so on. I've read those reports. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, or I, I, I don't know if if they're they're true or not. They could be. I, you know, the, um, I've got no reason to say they couldn't be. Um, the thing about the shroud is, of course, that 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 it's actually um, that this is this is verifiable. But the point is that, he, and I believe his whole point was that um, was that what he was was showing was achievable by by mankind by anyone that if we live up to our potential we can we can do what he did so i'm perfectly open to the possibility that 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 yes that that human beings can do that whether they have and who has and who hasn't i i just wouldn't know at all no way of judging that
0: yeah i mean do you think that we have to get to a state of enlightenment to do that or could people just achieve it by being kind? It's, um, you know, many sp- spiritual people want to get to that state of enlightenment, don't they? They sort of mm. become vegetarians, they live a more compassionate lifestyle. Um, but it's, mm. it seems very hard in today's world to mm. ever achieve mm. that state, doesn't it?
1: Well, I think the, the point, as I understand it, of Jesus' life is that, is that um, kindness, compassion, wisdom, these things, they are enlightenment. It's not a, a mantra that you repeat a thousand times, in fact, he's quoted in the, um, in the, the Gnostic Gospels t- saying to someone who's um, talking about what should they be allowed um, to, um, to eat, you know, and so on, and dietary laws and so on. He says, listen, it's not what goes into the mouth that corrupts you, it's what comes out of it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. um, I, I you see. I, I don't think there's a shortcut. I think the the problem with our, um, our sort of twentieth um, century uh, European or uh, Northwestern European culture at least, uh, is that we're, we're looking for, for, for shortcuts all the time, quick fixes. We want the, the latest upload or the latest download of, of enlightenment and so on. And it's, it's not, it's not a, a technique of a thing that you do. It's not something that you the, the chant, that you repeat. It's not what you eat. It's not how you walk. It's not how you dress. It's, it's how you live. And it's it's you know how you recognize that your full potential and the potential therefore of all other beings. And if you if you do recognize that, you can't like rationally. Obviously, I, I'm not talking from personal experience here. I'm I'm just um, you know just just someone. I'm just in, sort of talking about this from a from an intellectual rational point of view, not as not as an example of it by any means. But um, but if if you if we do recognize this, if we truly recognize it, then we won't be able to help but actually become it, if you like. we would you, you would have to be compassionate once you know that your neighbor is yourself. Because how can you want to just keep things for yourself when you realize yourself is everyone? And so in a sense, that's that's where in in enlightenment lies, if you like, that um, that um, and I think it gave a gave a, a clue to it. The idea that that um, it comes with unionizing. If your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. That um, that when we when we divide and we make separate, then we're just putting we're putting darkness into the equation and 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 lack of lack of sense, lack of feeling, lack of Lack of knowing, but um, and this is an, another an analogy that I really like that um, was in in this manuscript I, I spoke about that Nigel wrote. That he talks about: imagine a person standing in a in a plain in a savanna, if you like, and they're they're looking out for threats that might come, predators or whatever. While the human eye can only see one hundred and twenty degrees around us, that's a that's a, a fact of, of biology, if you like. So. What's the best way to be able to see 360? And he points out, of course, as, as I'm sure many of your listeners realised much more quickly than I did when I, when I first read this, <laughs> that actually, if you have people standing together, then they can be each other's eyes. They can, they can share what they know and what they see and what they're aware of to help, to help see the threat before it comes by cooperation, by caring, by compassion, by, by thinking not just of what helps the self, but what helps the others. But, and, and in doing that, that's actually the best way of helping yourself. You know, survival of the fittest, as Darwin pointed out, is a very um, apt way of understanding evolution. But the problem is that um, survival in, in physical terms of, of separated um, individuals, ultimately means that the the insects will will survive better than we do that a, a cockroach will will survive a, a nuclear war whereas as human beings won't and rocks can be there for hundreds of millions of years so the end product of of it is is actually evolution means we're we're devolving we're we're becoming less, which is why Neanderthals had bigger brains than us and they were before us, and they weren't as primitive as people thought in fact you know recent research has shown that they you know they had practices where they buried their dead and so on well i mean if that's if that's the case that we're actually um through through evolution we're we're actually becoming less as we become fitter to survive physically well um actually if we want to to think of how to to survive eternally then perhaps that's that's the way that that, that we need to do it is we have to to undo those restrictions and and see past these um these narrow ways of looking that um it's really it's our inner sense of, of knowing is the same in all of us. What can, what fills that? sense is different from each person and and here the physical senses come into it the eyes and ears and it's with our with our eyes that we see differences and we see you know different nationalities and colors and then we build up prejudices about this one's better than that one which is worse than the other one and and all of that kind of kind of nonsense and and we we build up this ignorance and then people start to to live out of that ignorance as though, as though it's fact and the ignorance begets more ignorance and this is the, the the law of diminishing returns if you like that can actually mean that as a species we end up on the, the brink of, of annihilation whether it's through global warming or, or nuclear war or, or, or biological chemical warfare all of these things are just simply symptoms of the fact that we've forgotten what a human being is and how much they they matter, and that um, corporations are chasing profits and instead of you know thinking about the the people that they're that they're affecting and, and and so on and that's another interesting example because in 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 law a, a corporation has more rights than a than a person has hmm. although it's not even a it's not even a person but i mean so to to actually um, I think what all of the great teachers, like the Buddha, when he was talking about enlightenment, he, he, I don't think he was talking about taking yourself away and, um, and just, you know, and cogitating. The, he, was, he did that to recognize what he had to do, but then what he had to do, he, he, he felt, was he had to develop compassion and wisdom those that's those are the sort of fundamental tenets of Buddhism and if you have compassion then you have to you will actually do things if you see someone who, who is, you know has fallen over on the ground you won't just you know give them a lecture about how they're only suffering because they've chosen to be physical you you'll put your hand down and you'll lift them up and and um actually um you know, I I, I, I saw a, uh, a lama do that once in in Nepal. Actually, the the of uh, a crowd of people, he was the first one to actually. Um, to actually help this this old lady up who was who was who was struggling to um to to walk, um but no but there, there are there are examples of good and bad in in all religions and, and I was talking in in negative terms about some aspects of of what you know has been done in the name of Catholic the Catholic religion for example and yet they had such great people as um, Francis of of Assisi and and I have to be to be grateful to them that they've actually um they've actually kept the the shroud safe. Or these you know for, for for so many centuries so um there's 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 good or bad there's good and bad in in all so i i shouldn't you know cast aspersions against any and 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 try to see i like to try to see the you know the positives in in all of them yeah well i mean
0: i guess when you think about the the, the game that we're playing from um going from unity into this kind of duality to experience separation. And um, mm. everything's been set up this way by us, you know, this consciousness to, um, in order to experience the separation. So we are the, if we want to get out of it, then we have to figure it out, you know, as yeah. Jesus did.
1: Mm, mm. I think um, that we've sort of set it up in the sense of, of making the arena of separation. But um, the, the the details, if you like, that you know this, because it's chaos, mm. you get this, this idea of the, the butterfly flapping its wings, making a storm halfway across the world. And um, the butterfly may have chosen to flap its wings. It didn't choose to make the storm because it didn't know it was going to make the storm. And that's the thing about, about chaos, that... that I think I believe ultimately the primary causation for everything that is and that is not has to has to come down to to free choice, yeah or nay, plus or minus, um, and but um, we haven't actually chosen necessarily the specifics, and so also I one thing one um, thing that I that I don't like that in in some people's sort of if you like the European interpretation of of, of Hinduism or Buddhism that. Um, you know that that people think oh everything is as it is for a reason if someone's um, if someone's in poverty or starving you know that's what they've chosen and blah 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 and it's meant to be i i i really I, I can't i can't buy that one um i think you know um what what the architecture if you like of our lives and our, our destinies we in a way we 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 make them ourselves but we also influence influence others, and in that sense are influenced by others, and it's not all deliberate, but where we can use what's deliberate is in, in recognising the lines that, that, that bring together, the lines that, the lines that care And and actually, sort of, as I say, casting aside this um, this ignorant way of of thinking, which is, interestingly, is quite similar to um, to to what um, uh, uh, researcher called McLean. And this is something else that was quoted by Nigel in one of his books, talking about the the triune brain um, that actually. Um, We contain uh, in the middle of our brain something that's very similar to what reptiles have as their brain. And this is actually, um, can be shown that the electrical activity there is associated with sort of territoriality and um, aggression and, um, you know, tribal identity. And, you know, what's mine is mine, what's ours is ours, what's yours is, you know, what's yours is mine as well, but what's mine isn't yours. You know, this kind of... um, of sort of, um, of, uh, of uh, um, nationalistic type thing where people want to to go to war and so on and to um, defend their little lump of rock that they that they're that they 're standing on it it actually it all points to a, a, a very a very low form of life which which we may become as human beings if we if we follow those those momentums to their logical conclusion, because interestingly, um, it was, it's been shown that that the, the other part of our brain, the um, the, the cerebral cortex, um, or the neocortex, we only seem to use a, a very small proportion of it, and, um, if in fact about ninety percent of it isn't actually essential, as has been found by um, research on kids with hydrocephalus who've got first-class degrees with, with only ten percent of their of their brain intact. And what that suggests is that in the past our ancestors may have used more than we're using now. So that as we've become more, if you like, um, technological, we're not becoming we're not becoming wiser. We're actually becoming more more narrow, if you like, and we're um, and if you, I mean, if you, we can just see a little analogies of it in, in, in day-to-day um, life. If you look at how, how, you know, kids don't, don't play anymore, except on, they don't play games with each other. They play on their, on their machines and their, their computers. And they don't, they don't make up, make up stories and use their imagination. It's all, um, you know, it's all Binary ma- machines and so on. That actually, we're using our minds and our inventiveness and our and our imaginations less rather than rather than more. And of course, technology it, it leads eventually to things like atom bombs, which which can have the potential to to wipe us out completely as a as a species. And so, I think. Um, there were, you know, some um, scientists at the at the start of all of this kind of he- rush into technology who stepped back a moment and recognised this. People like Einstein and, and Oppenheimer, who who you know, writing letters to presidents, you know, you've got to stop this. You've got to you can't. Um, you know, I know we were instrumental in helping it happen, but you know, we now see that it's 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 not. It, we, humanity doesn't have a future with with this type of thing. That that we have to if we 're going to survive we have to what we have to discover is not how to get to Mars or how to send a robot into the gas of Jupiter and um, how to make a, a seventh generation phone that can that can download this and that we What we need to do is is think, hang on a minute, what are we as human beings Where, How do we come to be what is our potential? How are we less than that? Why are we less than that and how can we how can we how can we get it back again? And for me, that's what the this this wonderful object, the, the shroud is the is the great clue to. That it's all about recognizing in each and every human being, however much money they have or don't have, you know, however what however um prestigious they're thought to be or not be. You know um, whatever country they they come from, whatever race they have, whatever religion they have or don 't have that just to be a just to be a human being, they have more potential, more value than the whole of a physical universe without sentient beings would have in fact you know this this limitless thing this that's that's more than uh, thirteen billion light years uh, across this whole physical universe doesn't come up in its its significance to any any one human being. And I think that um the thing about, I mean, I'm I'm just sort of I'm just sort of saying this as words, the thing about people like um Jesus and Buddha is that they actually recognized it in their in their lives. And that's the challenge for all of us to try to see whether um, if we want to um, to see whether we can actually try in our own little ways to um, to follow that example, and of course they pointed out that that actually um, it is possible that there 's no limit to to what we can achieve and you know you 're giving examples of perhaps um, other individuals that may have done what what he did yes I, I, as i said i don 't know if they, if they did or not but but that's to me is the whole point is that, is it that, is that humanity? is capable of that, that the that the shroud isn't to put him on a, a pedestal to be to be worshipped, that it's to, to for us to put our own humanity on a pedestal, to to respect ourselves and therefore to have, you know, a huge a huge reverence towards towards all other human beings, to realise that each of them is a potential one of him, if you like. Each human being is capable of doing doing what he did. And and if we if I think if we realise that enough and if that were, that idea were, were taught in schools if you like, so that, that people, it would be very difficult for, um, I don't know about, about people becoming vegetarians, but I think there, there would be a lot of people who, who, who wouldn't want to take part in, in you know, in murder or, or killing people. Um, there would be a, a lot more peace in the world if, um, if, if you know, if, if we all realize our common humanity enough. Mm i agree There's there's a lot of distractions with technologies in the love like of TV and computers,
0: although you know we, we we're using computers here right now and it's a a, a positive thing but Absolutely. when we when we had snow um, a couple of weeks ago um, first time in in ages that neighbors were talking to each other coming out to dig people's cars out of snow it it sort of built a kind of world or two type spirit where people come out and help it, helps each other Absolutely,
1: and it shows there is that side to people that, that fundamentally once you take away all this noise and distraction that there is this side to us that points to where we've come from that actually most people, if someone falls down right next to them that before they even have time to think about it, whether they're going to get sued for trying to help or, or whatever they will bend down and they will help that person up, there is that, there is that positive, positive side to, to, to people yeah,
0: I and mean, it's, it's kind of a natural instinct, isn't it? That we're just so distracted normally from who we truly are, and sometimes I wonder—is that by design, you know? Because there are groups and people here that want to mm. keep power, if you like, and so things are maybe designed that way to keep us all asleep.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's the it's if you like the the two sides of things that that Nigel talks about—the the artificial against the against the natural—the um the the um, the artificial side of it, the technology, because we get so we get so practiced in in thinking along that along those lines that we that we forget that that's how you know this this madness, this idea that people have that we became self-aware once we had words for language for self-awareness, or that you can download your mind into a machine and then you might as well die because you're in the machine. It's it's you know this Im- immense ignorance that any child can can see is is nonsense and anyone with any rational bone in their body can see as nonsense and yet and yet people people believe it but i i think the the whoever is propagating it and whether it's deliberate or whatever their motives are I th- as again as i was saying at the start about whether people um, believe or don't believe in the shroud. the The point is to to look at the points that they're making and and see whether they make sense. And I would argue that this idea of of, of praising artificiality for itself it has its uses. I mean, I use uh, technology in medicine, you know, all the time. But if it ever if it ever takes over so that you forget that the patient is a human being, then you've lost. You know, you might as well you might as well give up, really.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Andrew, for coming on. Um, oh, my pleasure. I think we, pleasure. we wrap thank it up you. there. Um, certainly food for thought there um, with the Shroud of Trin, and also all the other stuff that you said as well. You've got some true spiritual concepts there that people can really take away and you know, evaluate their lives really from. So I thank you again for coming on. You've been a wonderful guest.
1: It has been my pleasure. You've been a great interviewer. Thank you. I, I, I enjoyed that a lot.
0: Thank you.